This morning, I am going to put your fingers to the test more than usual, because as we continue in our topical series on the family, this morning we are going to take up the subject of fathers. So I have three uh, brief texts to touch upon. We're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 6, then we'll turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and then finally we'll go to the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. But as we come to the Word of God, all of the Word of God is completely inerrant. It is completely sufficient, and it is completely authoritative. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, let us look now at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then turning to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And now finally, back to the prophet Malachi. You can find the Gospel of Matthew and go just a bit to the left. The final two verses, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed your word to us, that you are the God who speaks. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us to know your will for our lives, particularly with respect to our families and particularly for fathers. You are our Heavenly Father and you care for us. And so we ask this morning that you would fix our eyes on your Son, the Savior Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There are many aspects of the family that are being undermined in our day. But perhaps none so much as fathers. Fathers are often described as irrelevant, unneeded. 
And we see this in the number of households in our nation that exist without a father. Mothers think that they can go along without fathers. Fathers abandon their children and their God-given role in the family. And statistics show us that the real impact that fathers have on families. Fatherless homes have more crime, more poverty, more drug abuse, and more school dropouts, among other things, than homes where the father is present. But that is not the primary reason why we need to understand and emphasize fathers. The real reason is that God has designed the family to be led by fathers. Fathers are not a mistake. They are not a convenience. They are God's gift to the family. And so today, we are going to look at the blessing and the role of fathers in the family. We're going to focus on fathers now, and then next time we come together, we'll focus upon mothers and their role in the family. But we are going to see this morning that fathers are to lead and they are to form. Those will be the two main points we look at this morning. Fathers are to lead in their family, and they are to be the ones who form their children and their family. Let's begin then by looking at fathers leading. Fathers lead, and they have their position in the family, because first and foremost, it is derived from God. Now, what do I mean by that? Last week, we looked at the subject of marriage, and Paul described the relationship of the marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And you remember that marriage is not primary. The relationship between Christ and the church is. It is not as if God created marriage, and then when he needed to come up with an example for the relationship between Christ and the church, he racked his brain and said, oh, I can use marriage. No, actually, God created marriage with the view that it would show forth the, re the eternal relationship of Christ and his church. Now, there's a very similar thing with father. Because after all, God is called father. God is our father. In God's great covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord tells David... I will be to him a father. He's speaking of the one who would sit on the throne forever and that God will be a father. In the Gospel of John, the first chapter, John tells us over and over again about the relationship between the father and the son. That God is the father and that God is the son. And we see this borne out in our Lord's ministry in, for example, baptism and in his transfiguration on both occasions, the father speaks and says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then if we were to look at the Gospel of John, we would see that over 100 times Jesus refers to God as his father. 
You might even say that the Gospel of John is about a theology of the relationship between the Father and the Son. So when earthly fathers are introduced into the picture, they are a part, an image of the pattern that God has already laid down in his existence. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 2, where we looked at marriage, we saw that the husband and his wife are to leave their father and mother and to begin their own family. And so we can understand fathers first and foremost by looking to God the Father. Now think about how important that is. If we understand from the scriptures who God is, we know that God the Father loves. That he loves first. That he loves by grace. He doesn't expect us to work to earn his love. That gives us a picture of earthly fathers. They love their children. They don't expect their children to bring about accomplishments before they can earn their love. Those of you who are not parents should understand this easily. If you have a baby, you don't wait around for the baby to talk before you take care of the baby. You don't wait for the baby to start earning an income to take care of the baby. You love the baby instantly, unconditionally. God, our Father, also cares for us. He provides for us. He brings the rain, the sun, and the moon, the wind. He brings us grain from the fruit. He cares not only for his people, but for all of his creation. And that is another aspect that we can think about. Earthly fathers are to care for their families. They are to provide for their families in the same way that God provides for his children. And then thirdly, God our Father builds up his children. He encourages them. He gives them his will and his word. He teaches them. He shows them the way to go and encourages them along the path. And this is also true of earthly fathers. They are to build up their children. Now, once again, Paul makes it explicit for us what is going on here. He does this in the book of Ephesians. If we go back just a little bit further from where we are in chapter 6, chapter 6 deals with fathers, chapter 5 dealt with marriage. If you go to chapter 3, there are two very interesting verses. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, capital F, God the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul begins by acknowledging his relationship with God the Father. And then he tells us something remarkable. He tells us that the entire idea of fatherhood comes from God the Father. Now, your Bible may have a footnote in verse 15 next to the word family. Mine does, and the footnote says, or from whom all fatherhood, as opposed to every family. Now, let me encourage you, your Bible translation is not wrong. There's no problem with your translation. This is just an issue of we have a Greek word here that carries with it several connotations. This word does mean family. And every family 
in heaven and on earth is named from God the Father. But the word for family is remarkably similar to the word for father. It comes from the same root. And so we might say that family itself comes from the notion of fatherhood. And the notion of fatherhood comes from God the Father. So the very family itself is an outgrowth of who God is. That he is a father. You can't have a family without fathers. It's impossible. Not just biologically, but theologically. Because God is our father. And when Paul says that every family or fatherhood on earth is named from God the Father, this has a very particular meaning to it. You know, sometimes while we're speaking of families, young children have a way of making up names for things. They'll make up a name for the refrigerator or for the garage or for the car. And it just is what they call it. But that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not saying, I'm making up a name for the concept of family. The word name here actually means takes its meaning from. The name is a result of the substance, of the meaning of the word. That's why we have the word family. That's why we have the word father. It's derived from God. But the Bible also describes how fathers are to lead and who fathers are. The functions of a father are described in terms related to God. For example, in Psalm 103, verse 13, the psalmist writes, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now what the psalmist is doing here is he's giving us an example or an illustration so we can understand who God is. But we should not misunderstand the psalmist. The psalmist is not saying that fathers are compassionate and so therefore God is compassionate. He's actually saying the reverse. That God is the compassionate one. And that he has built compassion into men to be fathers, to be compassionate to their children. And then we see that. And then Paul and the psalmist are telling us, as you see what is around you, you can determine who God is. Not because God is derived from humanity, but because humanity takes its essence from the character of God. Jesus does it in a little bit of a different way in Luke chapter 11. You may remember Jesus is talking about prayer and he's encouraging us to go to the Lord in prayer. And Jesus is saying you should feel confident in praying because what father, when his son asks him for food, will give him a scorpion? Or when he asks for bread, will give him a serpent? And the answer, of course, is no father. And what Jesus is trying to get across to us is we can go to God our Father and ask Him for what we need and not be fearful about it. He will meet our need and answer our prayers and our requests. Well, of course, Hebrews chapter 12, which we started looking at earlier this morning, draws a direct parallel between God our Father and human fathers. 
we are to understand how God the Father treats us by looking at our earthly fathers. Look with me at Hebrews 12, verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Do you see what the Bible is saying here is, our earthly fathers discipline us for our good. God does that as well. And we can understand why God disciplines us by understanding the experience of our earthly fathers. Now, this does not mean that earthly fathers are the pattern. They are not. They are the picture. They are the picture of who God is. Now, it is clear that the father is a much better father in his work than human fathers. Human fathers can fail. They can sin. They forget. Our Heavenly Father does not. And so it is crucially important for us not to judge God by our fathers. Some of you may have had an experience that was less than ideal with your fathers. Some of you have been less than ideal fathers, and you wish there were things you could take back. But we shouldn't judge God by our human experiences. Just because human fathers fall short does not mean God is not perfect and loving and holy. It's crucial for us to understand this. And this is a particular emphasis of the New Testament. God in the Old Testament is implicitly our Father. But with the coming of Jesus, the Bible clearly reveals the fatherly nature of God. It's not just that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God, our Father. It's interesting. Because in virtually every letter that Paul writes to the church, he begins by speaking about God, our Father. Not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will use that occasionally. But he reminds the church, you and me, that God is our Father. That's how he begins Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2nd Thessalonians, even Philemon. He wants us to know that God is our Father. So, fathers, you are to look to your heavenly Father for the pattern and example of how you are to lead your family. You must lead your family, but you must do it for the blessing of others, not for your own comfort. You must lead with wisdom, with patience, and with care. Because that is how our Heavenly Father acts. Well, the second thing that we see about fathers is that fathers form their children. They are given by God to build up and form their children. And so in Ephesians 6, verse 4, Paul gives us some practical direction for fathers. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, he specifically addresses fathers here. That doesn't mean that mothers have nothing to do in the family. We're going to look more closely next time at a mother's particular role. 
But you will remember last week when we looked at marriage that wives are to submit to their husbands. They are to work as a team together in the family raising children. So mothers are to come alongside and assist in this endeavor. But fathers have a unique responsibility. Fathers are to take the lead. You see, with the authority that God has given to fathers comes responsibility. God does not give husbands authority for their own benefit and pleasure. It's so that they can carry out his commands in the family. And so Paul gives us two directives here. One that's negative and one that's positive. Paul begins with the restraint, the negative, what fathers are to prevent. And I think he does that because God knows our tendencies. You see, we're sinful people, and our tendency is to ruin what God has given to us for our good. All you have to do is think about things that the Lord has given to us. Sex, the environment, relationships. Often we take and we twist under the devil's influence those good gifts, and we use them for evil. And so Paul begins here telling fathers what they must pay attention to and how they must care for their families. And so he begins by saying, do not provoke your children to anger. Now this is a very interesting phrase because in Greek, do not provoke to anger is just one word. It's one concept. And that is important. Because if we thought Paul was talking mainly about provoking someone, we'd have a completely different idea of what he's saying. Any parent who has ever taken a long trip in the car with children knows what I'm talking about with provocation. And I'm sorry, single child parents don't count. This is the, you're driving, he's touching me. He's poking me. He's touching me. I'm not touching her. No, look at my hands right here. No. He's touching me again. He's provoking me. That's not what Paul's at here. It's not just about provoking. It's a one whole concept. It's a provocation that leads to anger. It can also mean to exasperate someone or to push them to resentment, to resent what's going on. Now, I have to give a warning here. This does not mean, fathers, that your job is to always make sure that your children are happy. Children, you may not go home tonight and look at your fathers and say, Father, you're exasperating me with my bedtime. I think I should be able to stay up later. And the pastor says, you can't exasperate me. So I guess but it's not bedtime anymore. No, that's not what the pastor is saying, right? Young ladies, you can't go to your father and say, you know, I'm feeling provoked every time you make me clean my room. And the pastor says, you're not to provoke me. So I guess I'm done cleaning my room forever, right? No. Because the idea here in Paul's concept is to do this undeservedly. Out of order. Out of bounds. Fathers using their authority in a way that upsets their children and actually causes them to sin because of the way you are treating them. 
We see many examples of this in the Bible. There is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. I've told you this before. Where this exact word is used several times of Israel provoking the Lord. In Deuteronomy 31, God tells Israel that there will be evil days to come because you are provoking the Lord to anger through the work of your hands. You are sinning against God. You are provoking Him undeservedly. In Psalm 78, the psalmist says that Israel provoked the Lord to anger with their high places, with their idols. And again in 1 Kings 15, the king made Israel sin and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. So what does this mean then? Well, I think it means at least four things. First, it means to be unreasonable. Are we asking, as fathers, something beyond our child's capacity? Are we loading them down with too many demands? You know, that's what our society tells you you should be doing as a father. That if you're going to be a good father, you need to have your son or daughter in a sport, and they need to play an instrument, and they need to dance, and they need to have extracurricular activities, and they need to have academic activities, and so on and so on and so on. And the measure of your fatherhood are the number of Uber miles that you log ferrying your children from one thing to the other. Now, I'm not saying that you can't engage your children with activities, <coughs> but you need to make sure it's something they want to do, that they are interested in, and don't overload them. This is a real danger in our society. Let me tell you particularly how this comes to pass. One of the greatest challenges for the 21st century American church is what I sometimes call semi-pro sports for 12-year-olds and under. It is, well, my son is in travel baseball. Or my daughter's in travel softball. Or they play travel football. And what that means is, you know, we can't be in church because we're traveling. And we can't do other things at home because we're always traveling. And we have to spend large amounts of money. And the idea, I think, that parents have is the more innings that their son or daughter logs in travel baseball or softball, the better chance that they'll become a multimillionaire athlete. And it's just simply not the case. The numbers don't bear that out. I mean, it's one or two of college athletes that make the minor leagues. And a very fraction of them become pro athletes. Now again, I'm not saying you can't encourage your children to pro play sports. But don't let that be the driving force of your family. Don't let it keep you from the scriptures. Don't let it keep you from church. Don't let it keep you from worship. Because you need to lead in a reasonable way. It also, I think, means not being inconsistent. How can our children have a solid expectation of what is required of them if we are inconsistent in our application of discipline and rules in our home? If when they do something 
One day it's praised and the next day it's punished. How will they know how to act? If one child is punished for one action and another child is not punished for the same action, confusion will reign. And so we need to be consistent so as not to exasperate or provoke our children. Now, I realize that this is extremely difficult. I stand at the head of the line of this. Because if you're a parent, you know how difficult it is to be consistent when you are tired. When you are worn down. I think every parent has had this experience. There's a certain rule in their house. You know, don't run in the house. Don't stand on the couch. Don't eat dessert before dinner. Don't don't whatever. And when you've had a taxing day, maybe problems at work, or maybe there's problems in the house, and something happens, you just go, whatever, I don't even care. Do whatever. Right? But our goal should have as few of those moments as possible. We can't be perfect, but we try to be consistent. I think Paul is also talking about neglect. It's often said that the worst thing that you can do to someone is not to hate them, but to neglect them. To act as if they're unimportant or they don't exist. That was the great sin of David with his son Absalom. And do you remember how that Bible story turned out? David neglected his son. He didn't pay attention to him as he should have. He didn't correct him. And eventually it came around that Absalom tried to kill him and to seize his kingdom. And then I think fourthly, it refers to finding fault with your children. Now, it is one thing to encourage excellence in your children, and we should. But it's another thing to constantly find fault in them. So I want to encourage you fathers to find ways to acknowledge your children, to encourage your children. You're going to have to give them criticism. You're going to have to find fault and to correct their behavior. But you need to also find avenues of encouragement. Well, Paul wants us not only to avoid the negative, but he brings a strong contrast to encourage growth. He writes, But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, this is important because life is not just about avoiding mistakes. No, we have to be active and positive in life. We have to be proactive in our families. And so Paul starts with a reminder of the relationship. He's reminding fathers that this is not a job you have been given. No, it's a relationship. He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction. And this word, bring them up, we have seen before. We actually saw last week. In chapter 5, verse 29 of Ephesians, we read, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The word for nourish there is the same word as bring them up. What that means is, fathers are to take an interest in their children... And to see them grow, to nourish them, to cherish them. Not just to see them succeed in objective efforts, but to want the best for their children. Now, the next phrase we know, and many of us have memorized without even knowing where we have memorized it from. Have you ever heard the phrase that we are to bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? 
Have you ever wondered where that came from? Maybe you wondered what nurture and admonition even means. It's from this verse. That phrase is simply the King James translation of Ephesians 6.4. It's translating discipline and instruction. That's nurture and admonition. And so discipline or nurture means the training of children. That word actually has as its root the word for child. It's bringing up a child. It means to provide guidance for living. It means to bring a child out of childhood and into adulthood. That's what that means. Now this is important because when we hear bring them up in the discipline, we think, right kids, you're grounded. No dessert. Go stand in the corner. You can't go to the park. We think of punishment with discipline. But that's not really what this word means. It's so much broader. It means encouragement. It means teaching. It means learning. It means encouraging and exhorting. It means making an adult out of a child. Now that doesn't mean it's easy. We saw in Hebrews chapter 12 that our earthly fathers often discipline us for their benefit. And they found it a challenge to do this. So it is a challenge to bring up children. You know, one of the things as I've grown in age, and I probably shouldn't find this humorous, but I do. Whenever I see a a young family, especially if they've got a couple of toddlers and a baby, and they're trying to juggle kids and and, um, buggies and diaper bags and everything else, I'll look at them and I'll say, cheer up. It'll be completely different when they're teenagers. And they go, really? And I go, yeah, it's harder. And they jaw drops. And I said, no, you have to understand, it will not be physically harder, but it will be mentally harder. Trust me, it will. So I understand that fatherhood is not easy, but it's something that we're called to, to raise children in the Lord. Now, how do I know what the tool is that you can use for this? Paul also gives us 2 Timothy 3. He tells us, fathers, that the tool we have to raise our children, to disciple our children, is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. Now, you know there's a little bit more to that, right? And for training in righteousness. I think you're already guessing that that word for training is the exact same word that Paul uses here for discipline, raising children. The word of God is your tool given by God himself to instruct and raise your children. Well, there's also more formal instruction even beyond discipline. Paul says the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, how does that differ? Here, this word for instruction has the idea of placing before the mind. It's more teaching and less modeling. And it often carries with it a connotation of warning. We have to warn our children about certain activities. We have to confront them and say, this is not the best of ideas. You need to rethink this. 
It's not easy to confront children. But you have to. I've told you in the past that I think one of the great lies of our age that has been propagated through cartoons and Disney is follow your heart. No. Your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. You don't even know it. A close second is you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. I may want to be a seven foot four NBA star who dunks. I'm not. And I'm never going to be. I may want to be, now this is theoretical, so bear with me here. I may want to be a math whiz, but I'm not. Someone asks me math questions and asks me for math advice. The only way I'm getting through that is if my wife is behind me whispering the answers in my ear. That's just not who I am. And so we should not tell children you can do whatever you want. You will always succeed. That's a lie that is going to lead them to failure. Now, that doesn't mean we can't encourage them to go after their passions. Encourage them to strive for excellence. We certainly can. But part of our roles as fathers is to educate them and to correct them and to help them to be successful. Not simply to stand by the side and cheer them on to an impossible task. Parents, if you don't warn your children, fathers, if you don't confront your children, disaster awaits. All you have to do is think about Eli and his sons in the Old Testament. Eli was a godly man. He was a priest, but he refused to confront his sons when they sinned and they acted against the sacrifices to the Lord. And what ended up happening was God not only judged his sons, but God judged him for his lack of engagement. Now, one final point here. Fathers, I want you to teach your children a skill. I want you to help them going forward. But I want you to be primarily focused on spiritual, eternal things. That's where your children need you most. That's where they need to be built up. Well, God ties the roles of fathers specifically to a spiritual purpose. We see this in in Malachi chapter 4, where God ties the coming of the prophet to turning the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. And in the New Testament, Luke picks up this theme in Luke chapter 1. Because the prophet Elijah is described in Malachi. And then we're told in the Gospels that Elijah comes in the spirit of Elijah. Excuse me, that John comes in the spirit of Elijah. And so in Luke 1, John is described. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Notice here that God is connecting fathers to their children and building up the family. This is a promise of God. The ultimate purpose of the family is so that all may be brought to God. 
Malachi describes this in terms of avoiding punishment, but Luke gives a clearer picture to turn to God. I have to say, some of you may be discouraged by this promise. Because you may say to yourself, I don't have a close relationship with my children. Or, I don't have a close relationship with my father. What you need to understand is that the promise of God is true. It doesn't mean that everyone without fail will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It means that God works in families. And he uses fathers to bring children to himself. And even apart from natural families, we have spiritual children and spiritual fathers. And we will be united with them in glory. For some of you, you have spiritual fathers you've never met. They're called Christian authors. Someday you will meet them and be encouraged. And they will be encouraged to hear of their effect on your spiritual walk. So we cannot forget this promise. It comes from God to his people. Fathers, the Lord has given you great blessing and authority. Your family is a gift from God. The Lord has also given you a picture of his own care for his people. And that is a great responsibility. You had the opportunity to reach your children for Christ in a way that others do not. Your children have been entrusted to you for a purpose. Don't sit idly by and wait for others to tell your children about Jesus. You can do that now. You can pray for them. You can advise them. You can point them to the Savior who is all-sufficient. You can tell them of all the times that you failed and you went to Jesus for hope and forgiveness. Encourage them to do the same. Fathers are vital to the family because God has designed it that way. Let's pray.